Well, you guys know me well enough by now, if you've been coming here for any length of time, uh, that you know that I'm kind of a geek. I like to uh, study up on things. Um, I love the study of root words and all that fun stuff with linguistics. It's called the study of etymology, where a word comes from and what its root is. Uh, Is anybody else a geek like me in here? Anybody? I find it so interesting when you look at the root of words and where they came from. You you ever wonder what's going to happen in like a hundred years when somebody's walking down the street and they go, hey, go Google that. Where did that come from? Right? You ever think about that? Right? Now it's like, yeah, Google. It's what you, but it's going to become a word that many people don't know what it means. Uh, Here are some other ones that I find funny. Uh, The word mortgage. Do you know that in Latin it means death pledge? Okay? You're pledging that you're going to pay it until you're dead. Right? It kind of helps you understand where mortgage came from. Uh, how many of you ever try and find loopholes in taxes or anything? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, none of you are admitting it, right? Okay. Uh, loophole. Loophole comes from the holes in the castle walls that archers used to shoot through. They were literally called loopholes. Okay? Uh, here's another one I find really funny today, and I do mean funny. Uh, my leadership makes fun of me on this one because uh, the word fun, do you know where it comes from? Churches are all about, come at our church and have fun, right? The word fun comes from the root of Middle English fawn, which means to make a fool of yourself. <laughs> come have fun at our church, right? The Bible talks about foolishness and wisdom, and churches are like, come be a fool at our church, right? Okay? I love the etymology of words. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that in our day, but It's interesting how words shift and change. If you think about it, words are merely audible symbols that we use to connect to an idea. That's all words are. And as words change, our ideas also change. And so it's very, very important. Because think about this. If the Lord saved us by his incarnate word, and he teaches us by his written, inspired word, don't you think one of the main ways that the enemy will confuse us and change things up on us is by playing around with the meaning of words. And so over time, words lose their meaning, and this can be one of the easiest ways that we misunderstand Scripture. And two of the words that have started to lose their meaning, in my opinion, within the church are the words redemption and repentance. Now, I fear that those words have morphed for many of us into things that are maybe partially true, but not fully true. And so as I'm going through this week and next week, I want to explain these two words in a bit more detail so that we grasp both their meaning and the outcome of their meanings as it applies to our lives. And so today we're going to be talking of redemption and repentance. Redemption and repentance. That's what I'm calling this this morning and next week, part one and part two. If you look up the word redemption, you'll find that it has two meanings. In most dictionaries, it has two solid meanings. The first one, which is how many of us primarily view the word today, is this. The action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Okay, let me read that again. The action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. Quiz time. Is that a good definition of redemption? Yes, it's an awesome answer. Okay? We can heartily say an amen to that, that that is awesome, the action of saving and being saved from sin, error, or evil. It is absolutely, absolutely the definition of redemption. And we are thankful for it. Are we not Christians? Amen. But it's a lot more than that. It also means this, and this is the piece that I believe has been lost. It means that to be redeemed is to be freed from slavery. Now, the word slavery obviously has tons of emotional connotations in our history, a history that many people want to forget. And so the idea of slavery is not good just to even talk about. But then also on top of that, I believe pastors and churches in a well-meaning effort, and I am one of them, we want to make the gospel palatable in a sense, right? Because we think in our human error that it will make it draw more people. If we make it more presentable, more palatable, then the gospel will draw people. And what I'm going to explain today, guys, I got to admit to you, and I'm going to confess in a sense, I'm not sinning here, but I'm going to confess to you, what I'm going to tell you about redemption is not palatable to most people. Because it's a whole lot easier to say, I've been saved, than it is to say, I've been freed from slavery to one master, because I've freely taken on slavery to a new master. And that is what redemption means. It's to be freed from slavery to one master, but then taking on the free slavery, 
I know that sounds like an oxymoron, uh, the slavery to a new master. And we're going to go through that today. But I want you to admit to yourself, this is not palatable. This is not an, a seeker-friendly message. Most of my messages aren't. Because I believe that it takes the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you and change you and grow in you through the grace that goes before. The fancy term is the prevenient grace of God. It takes the grace of God to grasp you and say, you want to be a slave of God. A wise pastor I had once said, how you catch people is how you got to keep them. And so if we as a church do all sorts of parties and we got our bounce houses and our food and all the fun and the concert and the lasers and the light show, guys, guess what happens to those people as Christians when the fun runs out? What was that? Say it louder. They leave. If the grace of God and the goodness of God and the redemption of our Savior is not what grasps your heart, then the moment the fun runs out, you will be gone. And the moment trial and tribulation hits you, your faith will fall. And so what I'm going to teach you today, I think, is so key to our faith. To be redeemed is to be freed from slavery. Let's take a look there at Isaiah 43, 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now notice there's so much. I really honestly could spend the entire morning on this, <laughs> this section. It's killing me going this fast through Isaiah, just so you know. Um, but the reality is here is this. Look at what it says there. Remember that anytime you see the word Lord capitalized, the original Hebrew behind that was a four-letter word that is pronounced in the English either Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the God of the Israelites. The reason that they don't write it that way is because in reverence, not speaking the name of God, they would say Adonai. Everybody say Adonai. It means Lord. It means Master. And that's what the Jewish people, the Israelites, would say in order to not speak the name of God. And so, thus says the God of the Israelites, who has the proper name of Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't know which, because it doesn't, uh, remember, Hebrew doesn't have vowels, okay? So, uh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The word for Redeemer here is the word in the Hebrew, Goel. It means someone who comes in to redeem you from trouble. Uh, How many of you have ever read the book of Ruth? Raise your hand. Okay? Boaz. I'm really bummed. Like, I should have named one of my kids Boaz. That's like an awesome name, you know? Boaz for the touchdown, you know? Anyway, all right. I'm totally off the rails this morning. Here we go. Okay? So Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in Ruth. And so this idea of redeemer was used predominantly for two things. It was also used for avenging a murderer and various things, but I want to point out two reasons uh, that a kinsman redeemer would come into the picture. The first is purchasing back a kinsman or a relative who had sold themselves into debt slavery. Okay? If you didn't make good on your credit card payment, so to speak, in the days of Ruth, you had to then get uh, turned into a slave for the credit card company. Okay? Now, is it easy to work off your debt as a slave? No. That's why we support IJM, because they know going into these slavery situations, situations across the world that they can free people from slavery by paying off their debts. Secondly, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, would uh, purchase back land that was sold when in debt. So the first thing you would do if you were in debt, let's say in our current day nomenclature, right? If you were in debt to the credit card company, what would you do? You'd sell your entire land. Well, that's great. Then you go, you know, what? Live in an apartment? Get food at the grocery store? Oh, that's not too bad. Now, you got to realize that in those days, that meant you starved and you had no retirement. You had no land to work. And so what the kinsman redeemer would do is he'd come in and he'd redeem the land to purchase it back for you. So now not only did you have your own life, your own freedom, but you had your retirement, so to speak, your security blanket. And so it was not only saving them from danger, but purchasing back freedom from slavery and restoration to their prior right standing. That's what a redeemer did. And so here God is taking them He's taking the people of Israel, he's protecting them and saving them, and the way he's doing it is by turning Babylon, turning Babylon into slaves. Remember that Babylon were the ones that took the Israelites into captivity and made them slaves. You guys probably remember this from Isaiah 39. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
This was spoken in prophecy to Hezekiah to say, your kids are going to be turned into slaves in the palace of the king. And this was what happened. And remember, between chapters 39 and 40, there was the exile. The people were drawn into exile, and God is coming to say, I will free you from Babylon by turning them into fugitives. God uses this picture of purchasing a slave back from slavery all over Scripture because it's so clear to understand. Let's look at this idea of slavery from a much more broad, high-level view in looking over the story of Scripture. In the beginning, this is what it looked like. This is what we're created for. This is the natural created order in terms of the relationship between God and mankind. God is the creator, the life giver, the king and ruler over all the earth. The benevolent, which means loving and kind master. He's the provider of all things. And amazingly enough, in the midst of all that, he's also mankind's friend. Is that not nuts? That our creator is also our friend. And what we were to be and still are to be, and if you search deep within your souls, folks, you will figure this out. You will recognize this is true. Is that we are created to be created. We are the created being. We're not the creator. We're the created. We're the recipient of life. And the only kind of life that we can give is by reflecting the true life giver. We are the steward, the person that is the slave that is in charge of the house, so to speak, while the king and ruler is away building his kingdom. We are the servant to the benevolent master. Now, you might think, reflection, that's a weird one. Well, he provides to us all good things, and by us being generous with what he's provided us, we are a reflection of him, and we get to be his friend. Now, does this look horrible on paper? You look at it and you go, oh, that sounds pretty good. But what it means then is that he is truly king, ruler, benevolent master, and God. And that's where it starts to get tricky because what happened was, was we knew we were created for this role and it's what gives us fulfillment, joy, and purpose. But you know what? There's this lie that came into mankind that said, you know what? You know better. You know better than God. Why don't you try this for yourself? And so the fall, the fallen order, it just switched mankind. It didn't change God. God never changes. But mankind suddenly said, we want to be the creator, which made us a false creator. We want to be the life giver, which made us a false life giver. Rather than being a king and ruler and a benevolent master, we became a dictator and a selfish master that wanted everything for ourselves. And rather than being generous and reflecting the glory of God, we wanted to hoard it, to hoard all that he's given us. I want five TVs instead of one. I want 30 suits instead of one, right? And then we didn't become a friend of God, we became his enemy. All by our choice to not live under his rule and reign. And God uses this picture of slavery because what happened then is we did something very unwise. What we did is we basically removed God from the picture. And we were now enslaved to something else because when you usurp that role of king, you don't realize it as a human, but you are enslaved to idolatry. And so because we'd taken on this role of false creator, we had to create something, so we created false gods. As false life giver, we wanted to create something that was a false life giver. Interesting how it basically just reflected us. It became a dictator like we were a dictator, dictating religious rituals you had to keep. It became a selfish master that if you weren't good enough or smart enough or gosh darn it, people didn't like you, then you were going to a bad place. It became a hoarder wanting everything for itself. Groups of people underneath their idol fighting against one another and the world was turned to enemies. And this is the fallen order that's explained in Romans 1 and all throughout Scripture. And what we didn't realize in the process is this, is that these idols suddenly turned us into something we didn't want to be. Slaves and the enemy of God. This is what Romans 1 is all about in telling us the fall of mankind. We created these gods that think like we do, that act like we do, and have the goals we have. And so then we try to please those false gods as best as possible so that life has purpose and meaning because the original purpose and meaning we were created for doesn't exist anymore. Let me give you an example. If money becomes my security, 
my things, my stuff, my money. It's really my idol. I then make it into a God that if I am good enough and I work hard enough, whatever that means, to earn that God's good favor, I will receive its blessing, more money and security. But unfortunately, we know that to be empty, and yet we still keep pursuing it. I'll give you another example. If our kids take all of our time, talents, and treasure and become our primary thing in life, and we get all of our fulfillment and identity from them, they become our idol. I then make them into a God that if I am a good enough parent and I work hard enough, whatever that means, they will turn out to be good citizens. And I will receive the blessing of society that I have been a good parent. But unfortunately, we know that to be empty. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that we turn into the idol, we become a slave of. And so we've become enslaved to sin and self-worship and quite honestly, Satan and his kingdom. If you're not a member of the kingdom of God, you are a member of the kingdom of darkness. The Bible's very clear in that. You start out as a member of the kingdom of darkness in the sin-filled fallen world, and the only hope is the redemption of God that brings you into his kingdom. And this is what the Bible says all over the place. Let's look at one in place in particular. Galatians 4, 8 through 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? The root here for those words enslaved and slaves is this in the Greek. It's the word doulos. And the word doulos or slave means this, guys. This is so important that you grasp this definition. It means to be under the control of some influence and to serve the interests of such an influence. See, when you become a slave to something, whether it's your Starbucks coffee Whether it's your kids, whether it's your money, whether it's a sexual addiction, whether it's a drug addiction, whether it's an alcohol addiction, whether it's an addiction to success, anything that is not the motivation of the kingdom, you have to look at your life and recognize not only am I under the control of it, but everything in my life is wrapped around serving the interest of such an influence. Oh, if I get this card, then I can earn bonus points, and that will add to my gold card, and then I can get free coffee. And then if I do that, well, no, that means that Tuesday I won't get coffee. Oh, I'm starting to shake here. Right? Now, that's a mild manner example, but man, you guys know it. Anyone in here, anyone in here knows what it's like to be under the interests of such an influence. The word addict came from the Greeks. The word addict was a name for the slaves they would take from the fallen enemy that they would take back to Rome. That was an addict a person that was now under their control. And that's what it means to be enslaved. So if we are enslaved to Christ, we serve his interests of redemption and reconciliation, peace, holiness, love, joy, patience, kindness, self-control. If we are a member of the kingdom of darkness and enslaved to self, Satan, or the flesh, We serve those interests, greed, selfishness, gossip, division, strife, envy, enmity, sexual immorality. So the outcome of our lives, using our God-given time, talents, and treasure in the midst of our life shows whose influence we are under. You see, guys, you don't need to perform miracles to show whether or not you're under the influence of the Spirit. That's a false view of the kingdom. The correct view of the kingdom biblically is that it is our works that show whose influence we are under. It's how we use our time, talents, and treasure. And again, I want to put this in because so many people mishear me when they say works because of bad theology that's filled the church. Works is not what saves you. God's grace is what drew you into the kingdom. But your works give you affirmation of understanding that you are under the influence of Christ alone. And every one of us in here will not be perfect in our works. You will fall. You will fail. You will sin. But if you were to look at your life, what is the majority? What do you use the majority of your time, talents, and treasure to go towards? You'll really quickly figure out which kingdom you serve. In the midst of their slavery, God spoke to the Israelites that he would not leave them in slavery, but he would redeem them. 
Let's take a look back at Isaiah at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. Think about all the Exodus imagery that's coming here, guys. A path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Isaiah uses Exodus language here. You guys remember the story of the Exodus? God went to war with the people of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, and the king of Egypt. And he went to war with them to free his people because those gods were false and had them in slavery. And he defeated Pharaoh and established himself as king, freeing the people so that they could go and worship at Mount Sinai. But notice that he says, I'm not just speaking of what I did then with the Exodus, but what I am doing now. Here he is doing a new thing. He is freeing his people from slavery in the exile to Babylon. And I believe this is speaking even more prophetically, as we will see, of the freedom he brings us through his son, Jesus Christ. For what purpose? Look at the end of verse 21 there. Why does God redeem and free his people? Say it with me. That they might declare my praise. This is how we respond to God's redemption. Through praise. Through reflecting him. But unfortunately, Israel's response was far from this. Look at what happens there in verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities." Now we look at this and we say, whoa, they stopped serving God? They stopped giving him sacrifices? If you look back at the history of Israel, there has never been a point in any of Israel's history where they did not desire to give offerings. Okay, this is proven throughout tons of Jewish writings. So what's he talking about here? Well, in the wholeness of Isaiah, you have to balance it with the fact that in Isaiah chapter 1, what they were saying was, uh, we do all these religious things, but our heart is far from God. And so the reality of what God is saying here through Isaiah is you don't really bring them to me because you don't understand their purpose. It's more of a statement that they were there for the wrong reasons. And so God views their sacrifices and the sins that accompany them as burdens. The Egyptians had forced the Israelites into slavery. But the Lord's purpose was to bring them freedom and liberty. This is why he gave them the Mosaic Law. When he freed the Israelites, he was bringing them under his own kingship. And he gave them a law not to burden them down, but to free them. Let me tell you what I mean by this. How many of you get stressed out at yellow lights? Anybody? Which do I do? Go Right? Okay. And then that thing in your brain starts to happen as you get older where you're like, are my reflexes as good? Maybe I should just stop. Right? I can't even imagine what I'm going to be like in 10 or 20 years. Right? I'll be the dude sitting behind the wheel, you know, going like five miles an hour. But when you have a green, it's pretty easy, isn't it? You know that the law states that with a green, you have to go, and if you stop, you're actually against the law. With a red, it's pretty easy, right? The decision has been made for you, is it not? That was the point of the Mosaic Law. Guys, it's really easy. Should I go have an adulterous affair with this pagan woman? No. Red light says stop, okay? Oh, okay, that's pretty easy. I don't have to do that. The whole point of the law was to free the people of Israel so that they didn't have to wrestle with the two kingdoms. But unfortunately, they just gave over their freedom to the pagan practices because their hearts were not with God. They were unredeemable. They were totally and fully depraved. Only the grace and spirit of God could free them from that. And so in the midst of that, they developed this desire to be master and Lord and make God their slave. Make him the spiritual butler that they can call in when needed. It's very similar to a lot of Christianity today. This is what ends in enslavement. It's impossible to make the Lord your servant. 
He can never be anyone's servant except by his own choosing. And see, that is the grace of the gospel is that God, being God, being king, stepped in as servant, Philippians 2 tells us, to lay down his life for you and for me to purchase us back from the slavery we were in. Jesus' blood was an unimaginable, unfathomable price where an eternal God paid an eternal price of eternal sin so that you and I could be with him in eternity. And because of that, because of the weightiness of that cost, to be redeemed is not only to be freed from slavery to one master, but it's also this. You can write this down. To be redeemed is to be submitted to a new master. To be redeemed is to be submitted to a new master. The second dictionary definition of redemption you will see is the action of regaining, possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Possession. Now you might say, as a good God-fearing American, hold on a second. Wait a minute. People have died for the last 200 plus years to gain me my freedom And you want me to be a slave? Guys, in order for us to understand the gospel, we must put aside our cultural bias. Because God is not a tyrant like the king of Britain. God is not an evil man like the slave owners that whipped and beat and bruised images of God for their own devices. God is a benevolent master. And what we must understand is that we were created. Hear me here, guys. Do not take me as politically incorrect. We were created to serve something. And if you're not serving Jesus, you will serve something else. Second Peter 2 says this, 2.19, for whatever overcomes a person to that he is or she is enslaved. All of us in this room are slaves to someone, something, or maybe even some feeling. And Isaiah opens this second section or this next section here with the sound of a courtroom session in which he points out, guys, you need to trust me. I am a God who frees you from your transgressions. And then he also speaks to the fact that even though they don't deserve it, he's going to redeem them. Take a look there at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, whether that's speaking of Adam or Jacob, we don't know, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. We see here a couple of things. We see first a redeeming God that blots out our transgressions. And I want you to notice here, guys, that it says, I will not remember your sins. We've talked about this many times before. The American ideal is forgive and forget. No, see, in the midst of repentance, God says, I know your sin and I will choose to remember it no more. See, that's why we can forgive when repentance is there because we choose to remember the sin no more because the person is repenting from it. God is omniscient. It is impossible, folks, for him to go, oh, yeah, I forgot that, right? If you're omniscient, you don't have those senior moments, okay? It just doesn't happen. So he remembers our sin no more because 
repentance is in place and service to him is in place. Choosing to remember the sins because there has been repentance and reliance by faith upon Christ's sacrifice, this is the biblical definition of the forgiveness he gives us. But then secondly, we see him point out to Israel that they don't deserve it. How many of us in this room deserve God's grace? None of us. Not one of us. Not based on the sin of whatever thought went through my head this morning. Not based on the sin that I'm going to do this afternoon, probably, somehow, some way. Maybe not even based upon the sin that I've probably already done by hurting someone by something I've said. It always seems to happen. None of us deserves God's grace. And yet, his goodness is to say, but, now hear, O Jacob, my servant. I think of Deuteronomy 6, and he says, hear, O Israel. You've got to love me. And in a sense, it's almost like love me in your own power. But he says here, he says, but now hear, Jacob, my servant. I've chosen you, and I will redeem you. I will pour water on the thirsty land. I'll pour out my spirit upon you. He speaks of this amazing relationship with this servant of his that has been completely sinful. And yet he calls him this interesting name, Jeshurun. You know what that means? Upright or upright one. He says to the one who was not upright but was full of sin, he says, I will redeem you and I will call you upright. I will call you righteous. He's hearkening back to that created order that we talked about earlier. He's saying, I will do the work to bring you back into the place and restore you, redeem you, so that this is the created order you walk in. And see, they would still be amongst people of foreign lips and pagan rituals, but yet they would become God's people. And he steps into this idea of something he will do in the future. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring. Paul comes along in the New Testament and he says, it's not just the ethnic offspring of Israel that are actually the offspring of Israel. It's those that abide in the faith of Abraham. And this promise was given throughout the Old Testament that those who chose to receive God's grace and walk in his truth, they would have the Spirit poured out upon them. Think about this. You can write this down from Jeremiah 31, 31. Write this down. Jeremiah 31, 31. I'll read it to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. That's speaking of the Spirit, working inside, convicting us of sin and righteousness. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. As biblical scholars, I can ask you, when did this happen? When was the Spirit poured out upon God's people? Pentecost. It's the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, you can go read it on your own. The Spirit was poured out upon the apostles and they went out among the streets, in the streets among the pagans, and they said, hey, here's the good news of God's grace. All of these things that Isaiah spoke of, Jeremiah spoke of, Ezekiel spoke of, Joel spoke of, this is what's happening. God is pouring out his Spirit upon you so that your law can be written upon your heart. His law can be written upon your heart. And in so doing, God turned the hearts of the Hebrews soft so that the seed of the gospel could be received and bring forth fruit. And so when he says, they'll spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams, he's speaking of fruitful people that by the Spirit of God bear fruit in their lives. But even more important, look at that verse 5 there in chapter 44. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. Your NIV, and I believe your King James, also will say, I belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. This wording is very interesting. What he's saying here is that those that are in the kingdom of God, they will say, I am the Lord's, and they will be written on 
as if tattooed that they are possessed by God. Okay, how many of you in here know this thing called the mark of the beast? Any of you ever heard of that before? Okay. Now, I have a tendency to believe that um, it's either in your hand or on your head, iPhones. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. For all you conspiracy theorists out there. Okay, but the reality is, is we read Revelation and we go, when's that going to be? Is that barcodes? Is that, is that fingerprint scanners? Is the mark of the beast coming? Are we going to have 666 tattooed on our forehead? Guys, here's the bottom line of what the mark of the beast means. If you operate in the kingdom of darkness, you're going to get stamped with the mark of the master of the kingdom of darkness. And in your times, talents, and treasures, you will serve him and him alone. You know what this says? This says if you serve the master of the kingdom of heaven, you're his. So you have one of two kingdoms you can belong to. This is why in Revelation, God says, I will give you a new name and you will dwell in my house. How? As his servant. This is the idea of what the Bible is saying. So let me unpack this idea of the Lord's for a second. Let me help us understand what this means. Because this is core to our understanding of what it is to be in a relationship with Christ. I want you to understand that he cannot be your Savior if he is not also your Lord and your Master. The two have to exist. And you will hear people wrongly say, oh, well, you know, the Lordship theology. If he's not Lord of all your life, then he can't be Lord of any of your life. No, guys, that's not what I mean. This is not about perfection. It's about who do you pledge allegiance to. You're going to make mistakes. Who is your master? That's what speaking of the Lord as Lord is all about. And so let's look at some scripture here for a second. Turn with me to Hosea. Go to the right a little bit, past Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Daniel. And go to Hosea and look, look at Hosea 3 with me. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. What? If you've never read Hosea, you're going to, what? What is this talking about? Hosea was a prophet whose entire life was to be a picture of God's grace and love for adulterous Israel and Judah. And so he was to marry a prostitute, a woman who would give her love to other men, and he would continually go back to her and redeem her, even though she was not redemptible. And this was to show who God was to the people of Israel. So he says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Okay, that's not just talking about going down to Roth's and getting a raisin cake. That's a way of worshiping those other gods is to serve those raisin cakes. Okay? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecteth of barley. Now pause there for a second. We don't quite understand this. Imagine going down to the state capitol. There's the big golden man on top and you got the pretty trees blooming. And imagine one of those things that you see at the Olympics with the various, you know, uh, steps and stages. And on those are naked women. Chained. Beaten and bruised. Filthy. Maybe they have a slight stitch of clothing on them, but that is what it would look like. It's called a slave market. And it's where people would go to buy sexual slaves or slaves for their home. And what he's doing here is he's going and he is purchasing her back. Even though she is rightfully his, he goes and gives everything to purchase her back. And notice what happens. She doesn't get to just go about her way. She doesn't get to go, great, I get to go, you know, when I retire, I get to hang out in his house. When I go to die, I get to go to heaven because I said a prayer one time. No, look at what happens. He says, you must dwell as mine for many days. That sounds weird to our current cultural sensitivities. Husbands, you can say that to your wife. Yes, and wives, you can say that to your husband. Kelly, you are mine. And Kelly will say to me, good, because you are mine. That's the scriptural definition of being married. Okay? And he says, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. In other words, loyalty and covenant commitment. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's picturing the same thing, that when we are redeemed by God, we become his. We are possessed by him because his spirit is within us. Turn to Psalm 87 with me. A very odd psalm that's short but kind of doesn't make a ton of sense to people. 
Psalm 87. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city God founded, he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, in other words, the pagans that have been drawn to my holy mountain. This is speaking of the kingdom that will one day come where all nations will be drawn to Christ. He says, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Then this random quote, this one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and, the one were, and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. Registers the peoples? What is that all about? This one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Guys, what it's saying is that when you become a Christian, you don't get to just plop Jesus on top of your already existing life, your already existing relationships, your already existing family, and do as you please. The definition of becoming a Christian is everything is destroyed and rebuilt. Even your family relationships now change. When John and Jaden and Kara come to an age of belief where they're no longer just being taught by me, but they say, I am a follower of Christ, possessed by him, guess what they've now become? My brothers and my sister. And we never redefine our relationships that way. And so I get tons, because you guys are young and we're a young church, I get tons of you that come to me and say, gosh, this is so hard. I grew up in a home where my parents said they were Christian and did all these things, but I'm realizing they never went to church, they never read their Bibles, they never tithed, they never participated in justice. And I'm trying to do so, and it's, it's pulling me apart from them. Well, guys, that's because you're drawing closer to Jesus, and they're staying where they are or going more towards their kingdom. And look at what happens when that occurs. Your first and foremost allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his people, not to anyone else. Those of you that are lucky enough to have parents that are zealous for Jesus Christ, some of whom are here today, Guess what? They're not your parents. They're your brother and sister in Christ pursuing the kingdom of heaven with you. And yeah, you can still call them mom and dad because that's what we do. But it's about a new kingdom that's been formed and all relationships, all ideas, all philosophies, all opinions, they go away and they get rebuilt in Jesus Christ and him alone. Look at what Jesus said in regards to family specifically. They came to him and said, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus, the king of our kingdom, said this. Then... Uh, he said, uh, you, um, well, I already did it here. He answered them right at the end there. Okay, they said, here, here they are. And he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He redefines even familial relationships. But guys, American-based Christianity that is really just deism says your family relationships are above your submission to God's kingdom and his church. That's deism. That's not the Bible. Let me give you another one here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Who are we citizens first and foremost to? The United States of America? No. Secondly, absolutely, praise God for that, and we're thankful for that. But first and foremost, we're citizens with the saints and members of the household. Our first and foremost family is the Christian kingdom. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See what he did there? In those two scriptures, we just redefined what a new family it is, what a new country is in which you're a citizen, the new community in which you're a member. What is it? Say it with me. It's the church. And we're not talking in an ambiguous church that kind of you just go around the world saying, I'm a Christian, so I'm part of the church. No, your participation in the universal church is your participation where? Right here. Right here. Hans, this is so self-serving. You're trying to get more volunteers for Kids Wing. No, I am not. I am not, and I can prove it because for the first time in our history, we have enough. So the reality is, is your participation in the universal church happens here. And yes, we still partner with people outside the walls, so to speak, of this church, but this is your family, this is your country, this is your kingdom. 
By your participation in your local body, you are part of the larger kingdom. How do I know this? Well, let me show you something here. The church, the English word in, uh, in our Bibles, whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, it's actually the Greek word ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. You know what that actually means? It means this. Uh, hit the space bar for me there, Cameron. It means gathering and assembly. That's what this is. You never ever see the word church in the New Testament without talking about the gathering that occurs on Sunday mornings. Ever. This is the core of what it is to be a Christian. Years ago, Tom Rainier, a church growth guy, he wrote this book and so he went and he invited all the opinions of all these secular people and he said, tell us what you think about the church. And you know what non-believers told him? Like tons of them. Most of the, the people said, we don't understand why the church is trying to be like us. If I want to go to church, you know what I want to do? I want to go to a church building on a Sunday morning. I don't want to go on a Saturday night to a conference center. That's what we do. And the church, trying to reach all the seekers and make it fun and palatable, they go, let's make ourselves more like the culture so that we blend in and they feel comfortable. No, guys, if you're a non-believer, you should feel uncomfortable here. You know why? This is not your kingdom. You're amongst a foreign kingdom. And you should feel very uncomfortable here today. Because your allegiance is to someone that we don't worship or something that we don't worship. And my prayer for you is that the blinders in your eyes fall off so that you see that what you're enslaved to now is a cruel and terrible master. And there is a benevolent, loving master who desires to bring you into his kingdom. And it goes on from there. Where we get the word church today, what we use, it actually comes from the Greek word kyrios, which means Lord. Go ahead and click it again there, Cameron. This word kyrios was turned into the German word kirche, one more, Cameron, which means, which is where we get the word church. You see, in the early days of the church, they would point at a home because they didn't have church buildings. They pointed at a home and they'd say, that's where all the Lord's people meet. That's why non-believers don't want to go to a conference center. It's not the Lord's. They want to go to a place that is the Lord's if they're seeking the Lord's. Seeking the Lord. And so the church is the place where the Lord's people dwell. Well, Hans, what about reaching out and seeking people and trying to take the gospel to them? Yeah, guys, that's not my job. Whose job is it? But in order to make it easy on you and palatable on you to get you to come to our church, what do pastors do? They say, well, you just invite people here. That's your duty. And then I'll preach an evangelistic message to them. Is that wrong? No, not at all. But guys, it's actually unfulfilling to you because you don't have participation in the kingdom at that point. Bring it to the celebrity pastor who knows what he's talking about. No, that's garbage. The job of a pastor, according to Ephesians 4, is not anything other than equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. So that you can go out and you can say, come be the Lord's. Come be part of the kingdom. And the way that you are assured your part in the kingdom, there are two things that give you assurity. One is the fruit of your life. And the second thing is your participation in your local church. That's your assurance. What do I mean? Let me look here. This is from 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Guys, that word beloved, who's he talking to there? Is he talking to non-believers? He's talking to a specific church. The man who wrote this, John, towards the end of his life, he was the exact opposite of me because he would get up at the end of uh, the, the singing at the churches and he would say in a short one-minute sermon, brethren, love one another, love one another love one another. And then he'd go sit down. Hans, why don't you do that once in a while? I have tried. <laughs> Doesn't work with you guys. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, who? Who loves one another? The church. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Hans, I don't know. Have I lost my salvation? I don't know. Do you love the body? Are you participating in the body? Are you serving the people in this church? And are you part of our outward sharing of that love? And you can be affirmed in the fact that you're part of the kingdom. So when you say you're a Christian, you're stating, I have willingly become the bondservant of my master Jesus. I am not my own. I was bought at a price, and I do as he wills, not as I will. Kind of switches up when we do family planning, doesn't it, right? Like, how many kids are we going to have? I don't know. The Lord tells us to be fruitful and multiply. If we're blessed. What are we going to do with all our money? Let's see. We've got to get this house and this car, and then if we have some left over, then we might give it to the Lord Now, Malachi says you're stealing from God. Guess what? Because your money is not yours. It's been purchased at a price. My schedule, if I can fit in time with my church family because I got all this other stuff I want to do. No. I would say to you, look at 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. For none of us lives to himself. This is Romans 14. And none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. Say it with me. We are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. For what end? So that we would be his. That he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. The process of putting this in place in your life and growing in your submission to him, it has to start somewhere. And so that somewhere is to say simply the best sinner's prayer out there, I'm yours, Lord, save me. And from there you walk within his kingdom, having been justified in that moment and brought into his kingdom, not by your works, but by his on the cross. And from there, from there you will know his redemption. Because we must realize, folks, this last point. There is only one who has the power to redeem. There is only one who has the power to redeem. I want to tell you today that whatever you're looking to, whatever you're looking to, your money, your retirement, your sexuality, that ever-escaping perfection, your job, your success, your career, your spouse, your children, your clothing, your status, your bodies, your nutrition, your ministries, your religious traditions, your talents, your sports, your music, your entertainment, your hobbies, they will not fulfill you or redeem you. So why? Why? For the love of God do we keep spending so much of our time, treasure, and talents on them? For the love of God, why? That's the question I have for us today. Because what the Bible tells us is this. Take a look at Isaiah 44, 6. And we're going to hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44, 9, look at what he does here. He speaks about the folly of idolatry. He says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Guys, you might think, oh, good thing I don't do that. I don't make any idols for me to worship. Who fashions a god is saying, what do you give your time, talents, and treasure to? If you're building your career for money, if you're building your retirement for comfort, if you're building your kids for your own purposes or your home for your own purposes, you're building a God that is profitable for nothing. These things that I just mentioned are not innately evil, but if not given over to the Lord because you were purchased at a price, they become gods. 
He says, behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. You can imagine in your mind's eye this man taking so much time and energy to detail this God. He shapes it into the figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, lets it go strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He takes a part of the tree and he makes a fire. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it makes into a god his idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. Ouch. This man takes something that was a created thing and turns it into the very thing he is giving his life to, his time, his energy, his talents, his treasure. And then he says, deliver me. See, the reality is, is that God is the one who has freed us and he alone We look to all these things to save us and we surround ourselves with them in the hopes that they will do something. But the divine answer of happiness is not from these things, it's from God himself. And what we find if we're convicted in truth of this today is that every one of us, myself included, have believed a lie at least in part. Look at verse 18. They know not nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also break bread, baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? We'd all look at him and go, What? What would we say? Should you fall down before a block of wood? What would we say? No. Time to put a mirror in front of ourselves. What are we falling down in front of? What are you? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or even say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the absolute depravity of man. We have been so tricked into believing our own press clippings that we can't even tell the truth that we have been deluded And so, in the midst of this, we feel broken and convicted if we are actually listening. Because again, not one of us in here is not guilty of this. But it's in the midst of this, in the midst of this depravity, total and utter depravity, that God says, hold on, remember. Look at what he says next. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, For you are my servant. You see, here's the good news, guys. Even if you've let go of him, he never lets go of you. Even if you have sacrificed your life at the base of an idol, he still reigns and he is waiting for you to come home. I formed you. You are my servant. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Talk about the prodigal son running back into the arms of the loving father. See, the reality is is that we couldn't by our own power save ourselves or worship him, but God, by his grace and mercy, has said, I'll do anything I'll do anything to bring you back. So he blotted out our transgressions by paying for them with his own blood on that cross. He blotted out our transgressions by filling the role that we rightly deserved. 
And in the eyes of God the Father, we are now justified and righteous because of what he did. But to be justified and freed is not to stay standing where you're at. It is to return to him because he is now your master. And our response, our response then comes in verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For Yahweh, the Lord, has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. This is the response he asks us for because he has redeemed us. Today, I want us to search and ask ourselves, which kingdom am I a part of? Where do my time, talents, and treasures show that I am walking? Who am I calling people to? What am I calling people to with my life and my example? We have heard the word of the Creator God this morning, our Lord and King, and His word always demands a response. First, if you recognize today that Jesus Christ is not your Lord, whether you have professed to be a Christian for a long time or whether you have not known Him at all, if you recognize that Jesus Christ has not been your Lord, your Master, your King, but you have simply been using Him to get into heaven when you die or for emotional comfort when things go bad, and you've picked and chosen what to obey and what not to obey, and you've realized today that you're in rebellion against God, I want you to also realize today that he has redeemed you. He has purchased you back. And today is the day for you to repent and turn to him as Lord and King. And during this next section of worship, I want you to come back. I'm going to be in the back. David and Christy will be in the back. And I want you to come back and tell us that you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And we will pray with you and we will talk with you and we will figure out how to help disciple you and what that is for your life in walking with Jesus Christ. If you know that you have submitted your life to the Lord this morning, if you know that you are a veteran Christian, you've been walking in this trial and struggle a long time, I would ask you still to spend time today and even this week asking what areas of your life you need to give over to the Lord and then make a plan to do so. Maybe you've invited the Lord into your house and you have showed him the living room and he's comfortable. You've had him sit at your dining room table. You've even brought him up to your bedroom and he has looked through all the drawers. But metaphorically, you have that one spot in the house that's locked with a key that he ain't getting in. It's time for you to give that part of your life to him. To confess it and profess it to him. And I would say, if you want to do that with us in the back, feel free to come and do that with the elders standing in the back. Let's begin our response today, worshiping and singing as the heavens have done in something that we haven't done before. Why don't you close your Bibles, close your notebooks, put them aside. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin our time of response to God by stating as a community what we believe. And to do so today, we're not going to use a, a typical traditional creed. We're going to use some selections from the New City Catechism. Uh, we're going to have more of those coming very soon. They're out of print already, but they're going to be getting us more. And the New City Catechism is a way that we are teaching our children. Um, and my family, um, we're teaching our children uh, what it is to follow the Lord. And uh, it's a great, great tool for those of you that are parents to help build categories for your children to understand devotionals. And so uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to stand together as a fellowship. Go ahead and stand up. And we're going to do responses. This is how the catechism works in teaching what it is to follow Christ. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, by myself alone, I am going to say the first question to you. And then you are going to, and I'll be participating with you, uh, we are going to read together the second section, okay? So it's a question and answer, right? I know this is kind of hard for a lot of us in here. You guys are writers, not necessarily answerers. Um, so we're going to do this together, all right? So there's going to be five questions, and then we're going to go from there into a time of worship and singing and communion. Um, and uh, yeah, it's going to be good. So let's go ahead and do this now. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, 
to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became and bore the penalty for sin himself. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary, atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. What else does Christ's death redeem? Christ's death and resurrection is the beginning of the redemption and renewal of every part of fallen creation as he powerfully directs all things for his own glory and creation's good.